Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Welcome to Bridge Church. I'm Russell Berry. I'm the teaching pastor here, and we are grateful that you are here with us, and you have joined us today in a series on the book of Daniel. This is the second week, so if you uh, missed uh, kind of our introductory uh, message on it, you can go and check out the iTunes or the uh, SoundCloud or on our website and uh, get the message from the first week because I'm not going to cover everything that we covered last time for in the way of context. But this, this thing that we just got finished singing about God being a way maker, right, and being present in the midst of just the chaos in our world, I remember when that became a real situation in my life. This sense of like, can God be there in the midst of chaos? It was uh, actually our first year, my first year in full-time ministry. And uh, we were, James and I, we actually served together our first year full-time ministry at Howard University. Yeah, this is back in the day. Now, just for a little context, Howard is a historically black university, and and many people consider it the flagship, although Hampton would have something to say about that. Um, But nevertheless, uh, we were serving there together as roommates and had this incredible experience. It was so much that I appreciated about being in that space, Um, just the culture, the history was so rich. Just to be a part of that was amazing. And yet, there was also times where I became intensely aware that not everything in the culture I could co-sign on. You ever had those moments? (laughs) Well, one of those came for us uh, at Howard's homecoming. Now, just by way of context, this was like such a big deal that I remember I went to school in Philadelphia, and people from my university would travel down to Howard's homecoming because it was such a big deal, right? So this is just where people went to, even though they had no affiliation with the school. It was just, that's where the party was. And so I remember James and I walking on campus in this very yard, right, which is, it was empty at the time we took this picture, but homecoming was a totally different situation, completely filled with people, music blaring, and we see kind of like this group of Christians huddled up by the, at the chapel, and we were like, what are y'all doing? Like, aren't y'all going to mix it up with the people? This is ministry time. And it was like, nah, we good. We just going to stay over here. We're like, all right, whatever. Like, let's go. So, you know, we're interacting. And uh, day turns the night, and there was this uh, step show that was taking place. Now, I had experienced step shows in college when I went to UPenn. And I was like, oh, this will be an incredibly rich cultural experience. I'm definitely going to the step show. So... I didn't realize that I had experienced kind of the equivalent of like a high school basketball game. And this was like the pros. This was NBA going on, right? So we walk in, and I mean, it's like a meat market. I mean, you got like dudes just like in 
next to nothing, gyrating, people going crazy, women the same way. And I remember there was this woman standing next to me. She was like this middle-aged woman that had like a, like a 10-year-old with her, like a 10-year-old girl. And I was like feeling bad, like, oh, my gosh, she's probably like me, where she didn't expect to see all of this happening. She just was experiencing. And then she starts yelling, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank bless his mama. Bless him, Lord, talking about she's praising God for his oiled up physique gyrating in front of her. And I'm sitting here like, not you, it's the baby. Like, what's going on? So then, right, so this is a super intense time. Now, James actually, you know, he's a member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated. And so we walk out, and they, he has some of his uh, paraphernalia on. And so some of the dudes, like, sorry, like, yo, you going to go to the club? What are we going to party afterwards? He's like, nah, you know, I'm not on that. Like, I'm in mystery. So then they start challenging him, like, well, are you really frat? What's up? And so then he starts getting upset. Like, what do you mean you challenging me? Like, you know, so then I have to like push him off. Like, you know what I mean? He's about to get into a fight with this dude, which by the way, happy Founders Day. It happens to be today. Omega Sci-Fi founded 108 years ago today. So, yo, it's so bad. Like, he's about to fight a guy. I'm literally pulling out a pen writing a poem called God Hates Sin while, I'm, while this is happening. True story. Like, it, I, I, it was just this crazy situation. And I remember thinking to myself, like, yo, what are we, we got back to our room. Like, what just happened? And then the question just emerged, how do I live faithfully as a Christian in an unbelieving and oftentimes hostile world? What, what does that look like, like in, in real life practically? Because oftentimes we can find ourselves, and sometimes the, the flare-up happens before we can least expect it. Like one day we're just kind of rolling with the, the vibe, enjoying everything that the culture has to offer, and then every once in a while it just gets hit like, oh, I can't even participate in what is happening right now. How does being in a space where the majority perspective is not a kingdom of God point of view. People are not singing that God is a friend and a king. There's a different king that people are serving. What does it look like to live, to work, to go to school, to, to have friends and family in a scenario where that is your reality? Well, that is what the book of Daniel is really about. You see, the people of Israel, the people of God were exiled. They were sent away from Israel as a result of their, uh, their iniquity, their sin, the injustice that they perpetrated on each other. God gave them time after time, warning after warning after warning. They, they refused. They rejected him. They refused to repent. And as a result, finally, he said, well, look, you can't represent me like this. You're going into exile. And exile meant all of a sudden as they walked away, they had to walk 900 miles almost 1,000 miles to get from Jerusalem to Babylon, present-day Iraq. And as they saw their city in flames, saw the promises seemingly suspended or even canceled, all of a sudden they had to go into a scenario where, you know, in Israel, literally even time was kept based on the vision of what God had revealed. The whole system of the feast from Passover to the Feast of Tabernacles. Like they literally kept time based on a, a godly way of thinking. They, the, what they ate and keeping kosher, the clothes that they wore, everything was built around an assumption of God. And now they find themselves in a society that recognizes none of that. And it's one that in many ways, many of us can relate to in New York City. 
a society that sees itself as post-Christian. Yeah, we used to be on that, but not anymore. We've seen the light. We're, we're better than that now. And what do you do? Well, historically, there have been two different um, responses. We see this in nature. Many of us will remember this from biology class, right? The fight or flight response. Two different dynamics that happen when people find themselves in the midst of danger. The fight response is, looks like, especially in this area of culture, is, okay, you know, when there's no longer a uh, cultural, spiritual consensus on, you know, on God being the one that we ought to all look to, then fight looks like oftentimes separation from the culture. We're going we're gonna to just preserve ourselves and just be antithetical to everything that happens out there. We're going to get into our holy huddles and just fight to maintain the sense of distinction among ourselves. We see this happen far too often. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, which he is writing to the people both before and after exile, in Jeremiah 28, a guy, a false prophet emerges named Hananiah. And Hananiah says, hey, don't don't worry, people of, of Israel. Don't worry, people of God, because even though Nebuchadnezzar has come and taken the people away and taken the things out of the temple, we're going to get it all back. We're, we're, it's just two years from now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and we're going we're to defeat him and all the things are going to be well. He was saying, yo, you know, even though we didn't repent, even though we didn't turn away, even though God has decreed what he said he was going to do, we're going to fix this. On our own strength, we're going to make Israel great again. We're going, to, we're going to do the things that, you know, on our own perspective that makes us want to fight for this. And Jeremiah is like, you lying, bro. He just, in Jeremiah 29, he turns around and is like, that, that's not what God said is going to happen. It's going to be 70 years. And you can't just decide after everything you've done to just try to fight the culture and just be in this holy huddle and this clique and just completely separate yourself and just cast stones at the world outside of you. That is the fight response. And we see it too often, especially even in Christian circles. This idea, this sense of just wanting to to just throw stones at the culture outside and keep ourselves uh, huddled and separate. Well, the other response is flight. Flight looks a little bit different. Flight is complete assimilation into the culture. It's, you know what, I don't want to be distinct. I don't want to be different. I don't want to have people associate me with the things that they hate in this culture, so I'm just going to blend in. I'm going to flee from all the things that cause me to be dis- different and distinct, and instead, I'm going to just be absorbed into the perspective. And we saw a lot of that happen in the time of Israel. Well, And this is history. Like, there are people that completely just embrace all of what Babylon had to offer, and as a result of that, they, do, they just cease to be distinctly Jewish. They cease to be distinctly the people of God and observe any of the things that he said, and that's what happens as believers when we do that. So if fight doesn't work, and if flight is not the answer, then what is? Well, that's what we're going to be speaking about with the remainder of our time, and there's this perspective that re- relates to us being a faithful presence. Somebody say faithful presence. Okay, that was, all right, that was cute, but let's say it like we mean it on three. One, two, three, faithful presence. 
Faithful presence is a, a third option, and it's, it's distinct. It's not completely just trying to act like God hasn't spoken and hasn't moved and, and that, you know, just we need to just separate ourselves. But it's not also completely blending in to the things around us. So, well, there's this, there's this tension in between. And, and one of the aspects of being a faithful presence is, first of all, realizing that there's a bigger picture of what God is up to. That perhaps he has sent us into the city for our own well-being. Perhaps he knows that we are in a spot where we are culturally losing ground and that he's using that to actually build some character in us. Maybe, just maybe, he moved you into the city not so you could build your rep, but so you could build his. No, we don't have to just settle for fighting and flighting, but there's a middle ground. There's a, there's a different perspective. There's a third option. Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 29, verse 7 and 8. He said, listen, listen to what he says. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Can you imagine hearing that? You just saw them burn down the temple, carry you a thousand miles into, from Israel to Babylon. He's saying, seek the peace and prosperity of this city? Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes. He knows they're like, nah. He's like, yes. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams you, or, um, that they encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name, declares the Lord. He says, pray for the city. He says, in its welfare, in its peace, you will find your own. And that this is what it looks like to have a faithful presence. And that's where we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep, sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king, his dreams. In ancient times, and I would say even today, there was a lot of weight attached to people's dreams. There's a lot, there's books that people read, well, this is what the symbolism mean of the dream, and if you saw this animal, it means that, and if there was rain or whatever, there's all this whole systems. And the ancients, they were very emphatic about the significance of this sense of dreams. And so the reason why Nebuchadnezzar is troubled is in part because there's a whole lot of weight that he has signs to this thing. This isn't just like a, oh, I ate something bad before I, before I went to bed, and so I'm just, well, no, no, no. He's singing this as a message that was divinely sent to him that he needs to pay attention to. We see in, throughout the Scripture Dreams play a very significant role, from Abraham dreaming about the 400 years of slavery in Egypt to Joseph and his dreams, being able to actually protect and save Egypt. We see it throughout, but in the pagan world, in the, in the non-believing world, they still had this high sense, and they would use other methods to get that across, which is why he brings in all of these different groups, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers. Well, we do the same thing today. 
you know, except what we call them psychoanalysis. <laughs> Just tell me what my dream is. I, I, let, let me on my own perspective help me to understand me without ever having to go and appeal to God who made me to interpret that. And again, no shade on counseling at all. It's just a perspective to say, who am I leaning on and depending on to give me perspective about what it is that I'm about and doing? Y'all feel me on that? So, so, so look, at what the, look at how they respond. It says, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Now, this was a very common occurrence for a, a, a someone in royalty to have a sense of a dream. So he's like, boom, we know how this works. Tell us a dream, and then we'll tell you what it means. Now, there's something very significant that happens in this particular verse that you can't really read in English, but in the context of the entire book, you have to understand. When it says the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, at this point in the book of Daniel, the language literally, that's its, its original language, switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. Now, why would Daniel do that? Why, why, why is that choice made? It's very significant because, you see, Hebrew is the language of the Jewish people. It was there. So when he talks about the, the, the exile, he's kind of dealing with some in-house perspective and in-house stuff that they would care about. But when he turns to this issue of this dream, and for the next several chapters, all the way into chapter 8, it's all written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the, the lingua franca of the time. It was, it was essentially, you know, like if you go to any airport in the world, pretty much, you'll see English, right? Signs. You'll be able to somehow get around or, be, or, or, be, or understand. It's the most dominant language that people speak, and that's what Aramaic was. And so he switches to Aramaic to say, yo, this isn't just for the people of Israel. This is for everybody. This is the entire kingdom of Babylon. I want you to learn a lesson from the Lord God Almighty. So he switches to Aramaic and says, okay, this is how this is going to roll. Now pay attention to this. He says, tell your servants the dream, and then we'll give you the interpretation. Look how the king responds. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. He said, no, 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 no. We're not playing that. Because see, you, you know, I, he's starting to, for some reason, lose trust and confidence in the people around him. And he's like, yo, y'all going to try to mix this up? Y'all going to try to change this and make me, oh, I want you to tell me what I dreamt and then tell me the interpretation. And all of a sudden, and, 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 and here are the stakes. I will rip your body apart and break down and tear, tear up your house. That's the stakes. So, so they appeal and they make some, you know, sense. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is actually making a very insightful theological point here. He's saying, all of y'all, if y'all really can do all this supernatural stuff that you say you can do, that this wouldn't be too hard for you. If it's real, like I'm paying you money, you in my court, like what's up? Do your job. And here's the problem. See, they, they had earthly wisdom. And, and parenthetically, the fascinating thing is the scriptures never actually say that these people didn't have some access to some supernatural, some spiritual, satanic forces. 
that they could actually do it. You ever notice that in, like, the Exodus story when, like, Moses, you know, does something, and, and then he, like, he looks at the magicians, and it says for the first few that the magicians were able to duplicate it? And they don't tell you why, because God's point in forbidding us from accessing this stuff is not because it can't work. It's because it's not from him. That's the point. So I'm like, I don't have any doubt that a palm reader has, is accessing something. I just don't want to access what they're accessing because it's forbidden. <laughs> See, it's, it's an earthly, worldly wisdom, and it only gets you so far. Here's, here's the first point, that faithful presence rejects worldly wisdom. That's what faithful presence does. See, worldly wisdom boasts. Godly wisdom is slow to speak. Worldly wisdom says this trial will crush you because you can only depend on yourself. Godly wisdom says this trial will mature you because you can depend on God. Worldly wisdom says temptation, eh, no big deal. Godly wisdom says temptation indulged leads to death. Worldly wisdom wields might. Godly wisdom works in meekness. Two different types, both called wisdom, but two different types. And ultimately, the wisdom that they were leaning on is now leading to their death. They, oh, it worked for a little while, but now that the stakes are beyond them, now there's a problem. But look at how Daniel responds. It says, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I, I love this verse. Daniel hears about it. Now, if, you know, and I didn't have time to go into all of the, uh, the text, but go, please go back and read the entire chapter. But you'll see like the, 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 the wise men that Nebuchadnezzar summons, they try to make these excuses and try to appeal to him, and he just gets more angry. Daniel hears about what's going on and says, all right, y'all, prayer meeting, boom, let's go. And he summons them and they said, look, let's seek mercy from who? The God of heaven, because I know where true revelation comes from. And it's not from some rocks or some beans or nothing. No, no. I need to go directly to God. And he prays to the God of heaven. But look at also what he prays for. He doesn't just say, save me and my crew. He also prays that, that all of the wise men won't be destroyed. This is an aspect of faithful presence. It's not just about me and mine and those who agree with my faith or my beliefs. It's like, no, I want to pray for the peace of everybody. I don't want everybody to be killed by this tyrant and this dictator in this way. And then verse 19 reveals the response. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. See, there's a point that's being made here. Unless we get it twisted, the book of Daniel is not really about Daniel. It's about God. And what he's using is he's using Daniel as a case study to say, this is an example of what I can do through somebody who trusts me in the midst of a fallen culture. The, the, the one who doesn't just decide to compromise, but who decides to stand up, that that one, watch what I do through this person. That's why he emphasized the mystery was revealed. 
See, counterculture requires revelation that doesn't start with us. It starts up there and gets revealed to us. He has a vision in the night. And then Daniel blessed, and I love it, keep saying this, the God of heaven. You keep seeing that refrain, the God of heaven, because Daniel's making very clear. There's one God who reveals truth. And this God of heaven has a lot to do with what happens down here on earth. He hasn't retired. He hasn't just decided to post up and just chill for the No, he's actively involved. Faithful presence in the culture begins with faithful presence with Christ. Before Daniel does anything public, he gets together and has a private intercession, has private devotion, has private connection, and has faith that that private intimacy with God, that faithful presence with God, will result in a faithful presence out in the world. Please don't miss that. Before we can have even dream of being faithfully present out there, there got, that, start, that process starts before you ever walk out your door in the morning. That process starts with what are you doing in your own time with God? Do you have that or do you just skip it? Like this isn't to shame or to cause any sense of guilt, but it's to reveal that this is our power source. We need revelation to go out in these streets. <laughs> and this is not always before kings. Sometimes this is just before your boss, your coworker, your family member. <laughs> and it could be overwhelming. So Daniel, the, the king gets word that Daniel uh, has correctly understood his dream. So he summons Daniel. Yeah, so, so you... you you, can, you understand dreams, huh? You know what I'm dreaming, and you, get, you have that ability. And look at how Daniel responds. He says, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Oh, did y'all catch what he just did there? He went through every category that was in the king's court and say, they couldn't do it. You're, you're, you're trusting this system, enchanters, magicians, astrologers, none of them, none of y'all can do this. None y'all. N-U-N-Y-A, none ya. None of ya. And he contrasts all that, but there is a God in heaven who reveals. In this moment, he's actually speaking truth to power. He's saying, look, not only has God just revealed to me your dream, but also I'm tearing this whole thing down that you are putting your faith and confidence in. Faithful presence speaks truth to power. It doesn't just have revelation and keep itself by itself, but it also does something with that revelation. There's many examples of this we can draw on in history, but one of my favorites is this woman who was born in 1919 in Mississippi, uh, 1917, in the 50s. She was the last of 20 children. She had to leave school at age 12 in order to help her family who were sharecropping, sharecroppers pick cotton. Her and her husband were having difficulty conceiving 
And so they went to a doctor who told her she had a uterine tumor and that they just had to do a procedure so that she could continue, you know, with trying to have bare children. But instead, they actually gave her a hysterectomy. And this, was, this type of forced sterilization happened often, especially in the South, with black women. After she discovered what happened, she was outraged, and she prayed for wisdom about what to do. And that's how she got involved with the civil rights movement. She sensed the God of heaven telling her to speak truth to power. As a result of that, even with her limited education, her poverty, she became one of the most dynamic voices in the civil rights movement. Have you ever heard the phrase, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired? That was Fannie Lou Hamer. But she, in speaking truth to power, look at what she says. You can pray until you faint, but unless you get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. She understood that her faith had to activate her into action. And this is something that people oftentimes don't know, and this is why history is so important. So she began to found this Mississippi Freedom Delegation and went to the Democratic National Convention, which at that point was still segregated. So she had no voice even in her party. The party that had just signed the Civil Rights Act. And so she goes and she challenges them and tells them about the instances of her being beat within an inch of her life simply for the act of voting and trying to encourage others. She spoke truth to power. And that's a key part of revelation of what we need to do. I'd encourage you to read more about this incredible woman. But look at what Daniel now does. He says, you saw King. Now, he's about to say something that could also have him in a very similar situation. He says, you saw, King, and behold, a great image. The image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. This is the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt of. The statue that had multiple materials with a golden head, a silver middle and bronze all the way down. His vision was to make himself great in the eyes of the world. This, to, to see himself as this titan, this colossus that people from all over would see. And very, if you think, okay, that's strange and weird. How many of us come to New York for, to make a name for ourselves? Or if you're from here, you know, once you've stayed here to decide, I'm going to go and do the same. Nebuchadnezzar was still considered to this day. This, part of the thing of why this is written in Aramaic and why I emphasize that is this is like real history, y'all. This isn't just like some fairy tales that somebody made up. Like he's a real person. You can like Google it, right? Like he's real. Like it's, it's real. Got a Wikipedia article and everything. Nebuchadnezzar. And he was still to this day one of the most powerful people in the world, in world history. But he wanted it to be dazzling in appearance 
And that's the draw that many of us have. So the question that Nebuchadnezzar causes us to ask and that Daniel's response to him causes us to ask is whose dream are you living out? You see, the dream that he had in building this statue that was literally the size of the Statue of Liberty was so that people could see him in his dazzling array. And what Daniel explains is that the, and now when he goes into the interpretation, again, we don't have time to get all into it now, but he explains that each of the materials represent different kingdoms. With the head being gold, Nebuchadnezzar's, and then the next kingdom being the silver, the next kingdom being the bronze, the next kingdom being the iron. And if you notice, each one is made out of lesser and lesser valuable materials. And this is why Daniel was putting his life in his hands to even mention this, because he basically is saying, yo, you're not going to be here forever. And not even the thing that you're building is going to last forever. And here's the thing when we ask this question and wrestle with this, and this is something that we all have to wrestle with in this culture, is what does it look like? What's motivating me to move forward in life? What, what is, like, so if I'm a Christian actor, for example, is my faith at all involved with the roles that I take? How do the themes of the cross and the resurrection impact my acting? If I am a business person, if I'm a lawyer, how am I thinking through my role, my vocation, through the lens of what Christ has done for me? And here's the reality. If I'm not, if I've never considered that, that then I'm already assimilating into the culture around me. We're meant to be distinct. We're meant to be agents of change wherever we are. And I, and, but see, here's the other thing. I, what I'm not saying is that therefore we need to go and create shadow institutions the, you know, of every single thing that exists out in the world and we just do a Christian version of that and just put Christian on top and then that makes it okay. See, that's, that's the fight response. That's the separation. What God has in store for us is much more nuanced than that. Is how do I stay faithful? How do I, how do I remain a faithful presence while I'm in the world but not of the world? What does that actually look like? And, that, and I God, there's no manual for that except for the word of God. And the Spirit of God needed to help me navigate through that. And this is why Daniel is so important for us. And sadly, most churches just try to be like Hananiah and go, you know what? No, we just have enough programs. We can take back the culture. That's not even God's plan for us. He just wants us to be faithful in the culture to represent him. I've benefited so much personally from being in this space. I moved here from the Midwest four years ago. And it was like, the way I describe it is like going from like Indiana to like New York is like from a, a Christian standpoint, it's like going from a, a, a home game to an away game. Like, like it's, it's, it's different here. Like, it's like, I remember the first time going to church, like when I remember driving to church in Indiana and it feels like Sunday. Everything is like closed. The, 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 the streets are like just less going on. I remember taking the train here and it felt like a Tuesday afternoon, like. Sunday, what'd that mean? Like, you know what I mean? And that's just talking about time. But look at what Daniel says and how he responds, because that wasn't the only thing that he saw. He says, and as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. But the stone that struck the image became a giant, a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And now you can start to see why Nebuchadnezzar was so disturbed about this dream. Because basically what God had revealed to him is that everything that you're trying to build up is going to come crashing down. It will not last. It will not be maintained. And he didn't know who 
was going to try to be the thing that tear him apart. He's like, who is this rock that's going to knock down my shine? What is this thing? And the one thing that Daniel reveals is several things about the rock. The first thing is it says it wasn't made from human hands. Everything else that the statue was made, right, was a statue that was made in human hands. This rock, which, first of all, wasn't made in any human hands. Secondly, it's the least costly material of all the other materials. It don't cost like gold. It didn't shine like silver. It wasn't like any of these things. And he's wondering, who is this rock? And remember, this is in history, y'all. This is in Aramaic, so everybody can see. And Daniel is letting all of it goes on in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, he explains it to him, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. That's the king. That's, the, that's, the, that's this other kingdom that's coming. It's coming. It's going to tear down your stuff and build up another thing that exists throughout the entire world. But still, what is this rock? Who is this person? Nebuchadnezzar is wondering. What is this thing that's going to come and tear down all these other kingdoms? And how can it last long enough to not only tear down mine, but the one that comes after that? The one that comes after that? And the one that comes after that? Well, fortunately, we, ain't got, the, we got the end of the story. Because <laughs> see, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, So the honor for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, there is a rock that exists, and his name is Jesus. He existed before time began, and he came on earth. And he told people, look, the one that, look, that doesn't look like much. It doesn't look shiny and gold and silver, right? It just looks like a rock. How much are rocks worth? Rocks don't seem to be worth nothing. And Isaiah, he said that there was nothing comely in his appearance that we should go after him. In fact, when we see him brutally beaten and marred, the last thing on earth is like, yo, that's the king I'm going to serve? No, thank you. Let me serve Caesar because clearly Roman Empire is going to last longer than his. But see, there was a two-part aspect to this kingdom because the first part is the kingdom comes and shatters down the others. The next thing is that it builds. And, and there's this aspect that we have to remember that there's two parts to this story. It's what they call in theology the already and the not yet. Can I break that down for you a second? See, in one sense, in one sense, the kingdom has already arrived because Jesus has already come, died, resurrected, and we are here. We are evidence of the already. See, it's already begun. The rock has already begun to tear down the kingdoms of this world. But we also live in the not yet. And the not yet deals with the aspect that it's not fully revealed just yet. It still looks like we're losing. Our stuff still doesn't look like it's as valuable and shiny as the stuff that's out there. But one day, that rock will be built into a mountain. And it will cover in the whole face of the earth. And God will be the one that gets the glory and the result of it. So we have a decision to make. Which rock is going to be my relationship? Which way am I going to relate to this rock? Because it can either be the foundation on which I build my life and stand on, or it can be the thing that on which it lands on me. One or the other is going to be true of my experience. Faithful presence is founded upon Christ. This is what Daniel was getting glimpses of and visions of, and he didn't quite fully grasp, as we'll see later on. But this is what is real. And this, look at the response of King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, 
truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. He's like, oh, okay, I get it now. Your God is the truth, right? He says, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And now all of a sudden, the one who was disregarded, he didn't even bring him into the meeting where everybody else was, is the one who's able to interpret this dream because he had a sense of divine revelation. And this is the last point. Faithful presence redeems our culture. This is why we can't compromise. This is why we can't just stay in a holy huddle because we are the very salt and the light that needs to preserve and actually shines truth into the culture that's around us. And if we don't get that, if we just try to assimilate, then that means that we, don't, we lose all of our distinction. If we just try to run, then that means that we don't have the ability to shine. But there's this aspect of faithful presence in the midst. What would it look like if we went out into these vocational fields and began to lead out with Christian distinctives? How would our markets and our financial structures be different? How would our politics be different if people didn't just proclaim Christ with their lips, but they actually lived it out with the way in which they did their business? How would the academy be different? The media, arts, technology, all of these components are aspects that are supposed to point us to him. And and how do we do that? How do we live that out? I, I, I can't give you all the answers in one space, but I can tell you it looks like being faithfully present to the king who's going to come and overturn everything that's broken, everything that is sinful, everything that is corrupt in the current kingdoms that we see before us. So let's not be co-opted by it because of its strength and its power and, its, and realize that, yo, though it's small right now, I'm, I picked the king that wore a crown of thorns. I picked the king that they put a robe on him to mock him. But I also <laughs> worship the one, and I choose the king who got up from that grave three days later, who said, it is finished. Now let's go do this thing, and let's build this thing up the right way. Not through might, but by being right. Well, what does this look like personally? Well, I I got a chance to see this. We get glimpses of this. We get glimpses. We get shadows and and pictures of what it can look like. One of them, I I mentioned to this before, when I was in Indiana, I was leading a music ministry. And we would go all over the country and uh, do concerts. And uh, one time, we were supposed to be doing this concert in uh, Daytona Beach at this thing called Black College Reunion. Now, if you've ever been to, like, I don't know, Freak Nick or, you know what I mean, any of those other permutations, then you get a sense of what it was. But in any case, we were going to do two one-hour sets. So we drive from Indiana to Daytona Beach, hours, all day to get there. We get there, and the event promoter, his name was Ali, we get there. After driving that whole time, he's like, yeah, um, y'all only going to get like 15 minutes. And we're like, yo, we just drove from Indiana, like what? So we get there, so we decide, you know what, let's go talk to Ali, and we, I'll never forget this, we walk from our hotel room, and it was like Sodom and Gomorrah out there, like people, like these dudes, first of all, these were not college students, these, they was all like in their 50s, 60s, you know what I mean, yo, what up, girl, you know what I mean, they're grabbing on the women, like in our group, we're trying to like fight them off, it's just this crazy situation, and then we get there, our, the show was supposed to start at 7, it's 5.30, and it just starts to rain. It starts to rain so hard, it looks like we're gonna, the concert's going to get canceled. Some of the groups actually left. So we finally get us on, and then he starts, you know, we start to do our thing, and he starts to be like, yo, they're actually kind of good. Y'all, keep going, keep going. 
gives us our full hour set. By the end of the set, this dude is clapping and singing along with us, gives us another hour-long set. In that concert, 25 people gave their lives to Christ. <laughs> Yo, the next day after we rocked the joint out, he emails me like, yo, can y'all come to Alabama too in a couple weeks? <laughs> Faithful presence looks like seeing the culture redeemed for the sake of Christ. How can I be a faithful presence? That's the question that we must ask ourselves. What does that look like for me in my sphere of influence to just be faithful? And, and here's, here's the real. I mean, these stories and, and, and Daniel, we, we hold on to them because they give us hope and they give us a sense of perspective. But that's not to say that it's always going to end on this type of way. Sometimes you won't get to see the victory of being faithful. Sometimes the being faithful is the victory itself on this side because we still live in the not yet. But the challenge that's before all of us is to realize that greater is he in us than he who is in the world. The challenge is to recognize that we are to be in the world but not of the world. And is to have a sense of faithful presence with Christ where I'm rejecting worldly wisdom for godly wisdom. Where I'm seeing that, you know what, there's a better way of doing things, of interacting with each other. And I can trust God to do exceedingly abundantly above what I can ask or imagine. What does that look like for you? How can I be a faithful presence? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you were faithfully present in this world. You tell us in John 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For the Father did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God, you didn't run into a holy huddle. You didn't try to assimilate and try to just be like everyone else. But even as you went to the cross, you demonstrated something different and distinct. Faithfulness in the midst of power, speaking truth to power. Lord, help us to live out that truth in us, in our world, as we go out and go to work, go to school, interact with our families this week. Help us to experience faithful presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we share. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.